Father, I thank you. No matter what we face, no matter what we feel, no matter what our internal desire is, God, that you can be the ruler of all. If we give you our hearts, give you our desires, you will come in, the Bible says, and you will make this body that the world says is wasting away and whatever, that you make it a temple. It becomes a temple of yours. And in that, the Holy Spirit dwells, Lord, and you make us new. And Lord, as those that are here this morning have chosen to come, and then we invite you as we are here to make us new, to make us fresh, so that when we go out into the world, we can be your hands and feet. However flawed that we are, Lord, we ask that you would take us, that you would be our vision and make us more like you in our own unique way. Everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. That actually happens to be one of my favorite hymns, um, written, actually written in five, 535 A.D., so it's been around a while. Uh, anybody been around since 535 A.D.? Wow, okay, we got one. That's impressive. And two, two, okay, now... Now you guys, I think you're lying now, but I don't know. Um, but it, it actually fits with what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about the Bible. We're continuing our series on the basics. How do we know the Bible is what it is? Where did we get it? And how do we know that it's accurate? And so today is probably going to be even less preaching than last week. Today, welcome to class. You guys ready for class? Today is class, okay? Um, I picked Labor Day weekend because the vast, I think the majority of people are out on the water or they're gone or something. So welcome to class this morning. And those of you that are in school going, man, I thought it was the weekend. I thought I was getting away from class. Right? Getting away from class. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right. So the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, written by 40 different authors from all walks of life, written by kings, shepherds, fishermen, um, all walks of life, wrote the Bible, prophets, priests, you name it, over 40 people. Now, we're pretty sure, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, we know what the Old Testament says. That's not really up for debate, because both Christian scholars and Jewish scholars both agree on the Old Testament. It's the one, it's the 39 books that we share in common with those of the Jewish faith. And so there's not much debate there. Where the debate begins to happen is with this guy named Jesus. And that's where we, as followers of Jesus and with Christ, we tend to separate from those of the Jewish faith. And we say, the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about, that Messiah, the coming Son of God, that is Jesus. And those of of the Jewish faith say, no, that's, he's not the Messiah. We say, yes, he is the Messiah. That's where the divergence happens. But in the New Testament, of the 27 books in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament were actually um, starting to form as canon by 90, uh, 90 AD um, at the Council of and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now. I, I will spell it. Let me just spell it so I don't look like a complete idiot up here, okay? Um, J-A-M-M-I-A-C-A. J-A-M-M-I-A-C-A. 
began. And we talk about canon, right? So when we talk about like comic books and, and, a, and a comic book movie comes out, right? Those people that are, are like diehard comic fans, the first thing they want to know is, is this canon? Does this stick to the canon of the comics, right? Well, what does that mean? And when we say the Bible is canonized, it's, it's canon, what does that mean? The word canon actually comes from a Greek word. It means the rule, the measuring stick, right? So when you go see a comic book movie, what they're saying is, is does this follow the rule, the plumb line of the original comic, right? So when we read the New Testament or the Bible, does it follow in line with everything that we know, what, what we see to be true about God? And so... Um, in 140 A.D., we see that the New Testament becomes even more solidified, um, and then by uh, A.D. 150, Justin Martyr actually writes about that on the day of this, on the day of the sun, Sunday, they would gather together in large groups to be read scripture, be read the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter and of James. They would gather together and they'd be read from, from, from almost from sun up to sundown. And they would gather together in large groups. This ecclesia, if you will, the Greek word that we get the word church from, they would gather in large groups, read the scripture, and then they would break out into groups and discuss scripture. Does that sound remotely familiar nearly 2,000 years later? They would gather in large groups. There would be a reading from someone who has studied Scripture. And then they would break out into groups. Just real quick, that is essentially what, what we have coming up, grow groups. We gather together in large groups, and then we, then we separate out into smaller groups to either discuss Scripture or get together in, in interest groups. Uh, Lynn, you know, like Lynn mentioned sowing. Okay, so we get together and we sow, and then we spend some time digging into Scripture. Not just sowing, but digging into Scripture. Um, I'm going to be leading a men's group, and we're going to be going through the book Into the Wild, talking about our identity in Christ. Um, and as men, as men, where do we get our identity from? And so this is an excellent book. I just finished it up last night. Um, I am actually friends with the author, Brent Henderson. And so he's a, he's a friend of mine. And so I'm looking forward to men jumping in on my group. If you're interested in, in manhood and outdoors things, he is, he, is a, he is a big game hunter and an outdoorsman and a survivalist. Goes out into the middle of Alaska in the middle of nowhere and just survives. If you've seen um, Bear Grylls kind of thing, okay, Brent's one of those guys. Um, and so the book is excellent. You don't want to miss it. But, so that's my group. We're going to talk about what God says about our identity. There will be another group. I know Lynn's leading a group um, for, women, for moms, for moms, moms, okay, right? And, Gwen's, and Gwen is leading a group, and I don't see, she's back with the kids. Uh, Gwen's leading a group, and I've had some other people interested in leading a group. So if you're interested in leading, let me know. Uh, but they broke out into groups. I am way off my notes, but we, they broke out into groups, they came together in a large group gathering, read scripture, studied, and then they broke out into groups almost from sun up to sun down on the day of the sun. Now, when we examine scripture, there are a few things that we have to consider. There's three things that we'll consider and look at this morning, there's a bunch more, but I think for us this morning, number one, how closely to the original events 
were the original copies written, right? So if an event happens, how close to that event was that recorded for accuracy's sake? The second thing we need to know is how do we know what it says? I mean, these, some of these documents are ancient, and some of them are like only this big, and there's pieces of them, and we have to put them all together. So how do we know? How do we know what they say? And then is it supported historically? Can we go back historically and look at whether it be archaeology, sociology, linguistics, etc.? Do is it supported historically? Is it supported historically? So let's look at the first one. How close to the original events was the New Testament written? The original copies, the original documents. How close to the events were they written? Well, let's look at not just the New Testament. But let's look at some other writings in antiquity or what have you. So if we look at a time gap from the original to the, to the copies, right? So there on the left is the New Testament. Here on the left, with, from the original writing to the next copy was only 25 years. Pretty close to the events. In fact, the book of Mark was, Mark recorded his book within within about, um, let me get this right, within about three years after the ascension of Christ. I think your memory's pretty good. In th after, can you tell me what you were doing in 2017? All right, some of you are laughing. But, <laughs> right, I mean, you, you got a pretty good, and so from the first time, then we have 25 years later. Now, Homer, before the original copy, or from the original to the copy, was 500 years. How accurate are you? Uh, look at Herodotus or Demosthenes or Pliny or Caesar. And yet, when these other men, Caesar, Herodotus, 1,400 years, 14,000 years, 750 years, and yet nobody debates Caesar, Pliny, Homer of ever actually occurring. Nobody ever calls those books into question. Why is it suddenly we call the Bible into question? Or maybe it's because there's something inherently in us that wants to rebel against God. And it's called the sin nature, right? And so we want to call the New Testament into question. And yet, if we were to take this to a court of law, the Bible would stand up much better than any of these other books of antiquity. Think about this. God knew full well what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. If you were to go and pick up a book written 25 years ago, we went to an antique mall yesterday in Edinburgh, the largest one in the state. We went, and we were just looking around, and we went, and we saw all these old books. And there were books still intact from like 1860. If you went to find a book written in, in 1995, how intact do you think it would be? Pretty intact. That's just 25 years ago. Can you put that back up? That was just 20, that was just 25 years ago. It'd still be pretty good readable shape, wouldn't it? Well, take Demosthenes. Demosthenes' writing. His writing and then the copy, 1,400 years later. How accurate do you think it's going to be 1,400 years later? Not very. Not very. And so, this tells me something. Here, it says, like, okay, this is all great knowledge, but what am I going to do with this, like, from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday? <laughs> Right? What am I going to do with this? It tells me something that God is close to God is close to us when events in our lives seem sad or happy. God is close to the events. He's saying, "Listen, I got this stuff written down 
I moved on people charts. I began to get this stuff written down. And so it says, tells me that no matter what you're going through, whatever event is happening in your life, God is still close to you. And he's writing it down. And he's saying, listen, I know what's going on in your life. It may seem like I'm miles away, but understand that I'm with you. I am for you. I'm not against you. Right? He's with you regardless. So how close is it to the original events, the Bible? It's as close as anything we have in ancient writings. It is on the money. Now, the next thing that people want to argue and debate is they want to say, well, we don't know that it's, you know, it's not accurate. We don't know how accurate the Bible is. Because after all, if I'm going to put my whole life on the line, my whole belief system, and everything that I am, if I'm going to put it on the line, don't you want it to be accurate? Right? I was driving somebody's truck the other day. Uh, he let me borrow their truck. And he says, oh, hey, the gas gauge doesn't work. <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't just like leaning over on E or just past the F or whatever. It, like, it wasn't like that. It was literally hanging upside down. I'm like, it's either way past full or it's way past empty. I don't know which. It's like those people who never take their Christmas decorations down. Are they really late or are they early? I, his gas gauge was the same way. I, I have no idea. I need, if I'm trying to get from point A to point B in my life as a guide, I need it to be accurate, right? Remember a few years ago when Apple Maps was having all those problems with those roads, with the, People driving off cliffs and bridges that Apple Maps was saying was there and they weren't. They had more faith in their Apple Map than they did in what they were seeing. Right? We want things to be accurate. So if I'm going to put my life on the line and risk, even risk relationships for this, it needs to be accurate. So when we go back to those when we go back to those, um, when we go back to scripture and the writings, how do we really know that this thing says what it says? How do we know that what we're reading is accurate? Well, remember all those, remember we talked about having copies of the originals, right? Homer, with Homer, we have like 600. And 43 copies. Look at the New Testament. We have 5,636 copies of the originals of the New Testament. Look at Caesar, Pliny, Demosthenes. Nothing stands up to the Bible in ancient writings. Nothing. We know exactly what the Bible says because we have 5,686 copies of it. Caesar, we only have 10 copies of Caesar's writings in his history, of what he wrote in his history. Now, when I go back to read Caesar, I've only, they've only got 10 copies to work from to figure out what he was saying. Because remember, over time, the ink begins to dry out or disappear or pages get ripped. We, don't, we have to kind of infer. Do you think if I have 5,686 copies of something that I have to infer what it says at all? No, because if a letter's missing in this one, I'll just go to this one for the next one. I know, it's there. I've got a copy of it somewhere, right? So, and some of these copies date back, again, some of these copies date back within a few months to a few years 
of the ascension of Christ. We, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. In fact, in 1947, some of you might know this, in 1947, there was a shepherd boy wandering in the desert with his sheep in Israel, and he's going to find a sheep. Well, he thinks that maybe one of the sheep wandered into a cave. And so he takes a rock and he throws it into the cave trying to scare the sheep out or trying to listen if the sheep, you know, baths or, is that the noise? I don't know. Thank you, Charity. Right? And so what does he do? He, listen, he listens, but he doesn't hear a bath. He, he hears shattering of pots from his rock. Well, that's weird. What's in that cave? What, what's, so he goes into the cave. And he finds what are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he found, um, he found about 240 to 900, well, it was about 941 different documents in there. He found the book of Isaiah, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Psalms, some of the oldest known scrolls he found in there. This is 1947. Okay? This is like in the annals of human history, this is very recent. It may seem like a long time, but it's very recent. And what he found in those scrolls was word for word what we have in our Bible. How do we know what we've got? We know what we've got. We know what it says. Now, why does, all, why does having so many copies matter? Why does it matter? John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, here's what happens. If I have 5,686 copies, one copy might be missing the word O in God, right? Because time, is this making sense? The L might be missing in another copy. The F might be missing in another copy. A W might be, might be missing in another, why? Because these things are hundreds if not thousands of years old. Like I said, the ink dries up, pieces get ripped off, and so you're missing stuff. But when I've got five, over 5,000 copies of something, I can just go to the next one. What was supposed to be there? Oh, yeah, that's the letter that was supposed to be there. Oh, yeah, that was, but if I've only got like seven copies or ten copies like Caesar I, and something's missing, I've only got 900 copies to figure out what, what it says. Is it, think about this. God knew full well what he was doing. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has through over time, just kind of overseeing this whole thing we call the Bible to make sure that it's accurate. You can't have 66 books inside a library called the Bible that spans thousands of years with 40 different authors from all walks of life, from all different places geographically, and yet they all tell the same story. What are the odds? Right? What are the chances of that? In fact, Frederick Kenyon, he's an ancient manuscript expert. Um, I just want to read to you what he said in regards to how the Bible came to be and its accuracy and what we know about it. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially in the case of the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every passage is preserved. This cannot be said of any other ancient book in the world. 
think about this. Here's an, here's an ancient manuscript expert, and he says there is no other ancient manuscript this accurate. The holy book of Hinduism is the only book that comes close, ne- next book that comes close, and it's, it's maybe at best 85% accurate. At best. That's impressive. It means that if God cares this much about his word, that he's willing to oversee it, to make sure that it comes together, so that he can transform your life and transform human history with it, if he's willing to look over this and be this detailed with it, how much more is he concerned about you and your life? And the details of your life. And the details of your kids' lives. And the details of your parents' lives or your co-workers' lives. He cares about the details of our lives. He cares about the thoughts of our lives. He cares. He, he's an intricate God. Go outside and look. We have these Canadian geese out here. I just said Canadian geese and you start laughing. I don't even have to say anything else. You know, right? Do you ever see a Canadian geese out here twiddling his feathers going, oh my gosh, where am I going to find my next meal? What, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Right? What am I going to... They don't worry because God takes care of them. Darn it. <laughs> right? Like, how many of you ever, like, seriously prayed, God, could you, like, do something about the Canadian geese? Yeah. Yes, they do love us. They send them back to Canada or something. I don't know. But, right? But Jesus even said, don't be concerned about your life. I take care of the sparrows. Are you not more valuable than the sparrows? And the minute that we start to worry about our life, what we're telling God is, I'm less valuable than the sparrow. The minute we start to worry, I don't know if God's going to provide. I don't know that God's going to provide. We're saying, God, you just devalue yourself below a bird. That's not cool. God values you far more than a sparrow. So, the question, the third question that we have to ask about Scripture, about the Bible, is it historically accurate? Does the Bible make claims? Because let's just be honest, there's some pretty absurd claims in the Bible, aren't there? I mean, seriously, right? There's some pretty absurd stuff. March around the wall seven times, be silent every day. And then on the seventh day, talking about the walls of Jericho, right? The old song we used to sing, like Joshua fought the battle at Jericho, and the walls come tumbling. And then the seventh day, everybody shout and blow the trumpets, and the walls will come down. Look, I know some people in the military that said that's the most absurd way to take a city, is just march around it and be quiet. And yet, the walls of Jer- we can take you to the walls of Jericho, in Israel and show you where they're falling. They've fallen. We have archaeological proof. They're down. We know where that is. King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, was a man of, of, of war and great military exploits. Now, David had his flaws. Don't get me wrong. David was human, like all of us. But here's something interesting, because they would argue whether or not, some would argue whether David ever existed. But in 1993, in modern-day Iraq, which was Babylon, one of the things that they would do 
is when they built a building, they would, and on the pillars that support the roof, they would inscribe history around the pillars. So that when you walked by the pillar, you would remember your history and you could read it. And in 1993, what do you think they found buried in the sand? A pillar with the history of David inscribed from the historians in the kingdom of Babylon. Now, why are historians in modern-day Iraq writing about David in Israel who happened hundreds of years before them? And yet, what's on the pillar is exactly what we have in our Bible. Something else. In 1993, man, the archaeologists were on fire in 93. They found Peter's house, Capernaum. They know it's Peter's house from relics and from other things that, were, that they found in the rubble, in the, in the old house. So they found Peter's house in 93. Let's go more recent. In 2005, they found the Pool of Siloam. In 2005, they found the pool where Jesus healed the blind man. Go on and on and on and on and on about archaeological finds that continue to prove the gospel true. So, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says this. About the, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. He says that Paul tells the church in Rome, he says, whatever was written, whatever was written in this gospel was given to us for our instruction that through endurance now listen endurance can't happen if you're happy all the time. Endurance can't happen if you're not in a struggle, if you're not in a fight. And so Paul says that this stuff was written through endurance and through encouragement. That if you're going through something, be encouraged because God took special care of this book. How much more will he take special care of you? In your pain and in your suffering and in your struggle. In your search to find yourself or your prayer for your neighbor or your prayer for your parents. Or walking alongside somebody in their struggle and their trial. It's through patient endurance. So he says that from the Bible we receive instruction for both our physical world and our spiritual world. And where does it come? We get instruction by enduring. We get instruction and encouragement in that. So I just want to tell you this morning, if you're here, that you will never, you will never endure your trials without encouragement. And where does the encouragement come from? The one place that Jesus said, I will make sure I put this together over thousands and thousands of years across people from all over the globe, different walks of life, and I will make sure that there are enough copies that you know exactly what I said because I stand behind my word. Right? Now, one of the biggest things that we face as Christians when we talk about the validity, validity of Scripture is, well, you're a Christian and you're just biased because that's your holy book. Right? 
How many of you have, how many of you have heard of that claim? Let me see your hands. Yeah. A few of you. Yeah. Well, you're just a Christian and you're just trying to defend your holy book and you're biased. Don't confuse non-neutrality with objectivity. Don't confuse non-neutrality with objectivity. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? Okay. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say that you have a friend. And that friend also happens to be your doctor. And I don't mean your doctor's your friend like you see him once every six months. I mean like your doctor's your friend. Your kids play together. You go out to eat together. You and your doctor are good friends. Right? And let's say that your doctor discovers you have cancer. Now, your doctor, who is your friend, discovers that you have cancer. Now, is he neutral in your friendship? Is he? No, he's not neutral in your friendship. He's your friend. He's going to be there for you, right? Okay. But can he also be objective and point out the cancer? Yes. Just because I'm not neutral doesn't mean that I can't be objective and call something the way I see it. How about those that survived the Holocaust? People like Viktor Frankl, Frankl or Corey Ten Boom who survived the Holocaust and then wrote books about the concentration camps. They, do you think they're neutral about the concentration camps? No. Do you think they're objective in their writings about what happened in the concentration camps? Yes. <laughs> right? So, let me say this. That if Christian intellectuals who are doing their work on the historicity and the accuracy of Scripture, if it can be proved that they're biased, then all of their work is thrown out and it's pointless. Right? Then it's pointless. We don't, we don't need to, to pay any attention to it. And so actually there's more pressure on them to be objective than there is somebody who's neutral. Isn't there? We think the person who's neutral is, well, they're neutral and so they don't have a bias and so I can trust them. No. If I have a bias and I believe that this is the word of God, the infallible word of God, the inherent word of God, then it's on me to prove it and that proof better be concrete. Because if not, and you can shoot a hole in it, then what, why should you believe anything else that I say? Right? It's like trust. You build trust, you build trust, you build trust, but all it takes is one little thing and trust is gone, and then it takes years to build the trust back up. Right? So the same is true. So here's some things to think about. If I'm going to write a book because what, often what's purported is, well, they just got together and wrote that book to create a new religion because they weren't happy with Judaism or, or Roman mythology or whatever else was around at the time. Okay, then why did they use the credibility of women? Oh, stay with me. Some of you just got offended. <laughs> why did they use the credibility of women as the basis for the resurrection, which is the linchpin of Christianity? Because women in that culture weren't allowed to testify in court. They weren't allowed to hold positions in government. Now, a woman could work in the house. A woman could have a business on the side and make money for the family. 
but they weren't allowed to be teachers. They weren't allowed anywhere in the government. Women had little to no credibility in that society. So why would they use women? I mean, think about it. If you're going to try to write a book to start a new religion and win the masses, wouldn't you use the most credible people you could find? Most of us would. You wouldn't take somebody who has no credibility in your society and say, okay, let's use the people with no credibility to build a religion. That just doesn't, there's no logical sense in that. You would never use a woman to validate a story. They, their story would not hold up in court. They wouldn't even be allowed in court. And yet the Bible uses women to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second thing, well, they made it up. This was just all made up. They all got together, put their heads together, and made up this story. Let me ask you something. Why? Why? Why would you make something up that, one, is going to cost you your job, cost, maybe even cost you your spouse? Your spouse or your kids would leave you because of what you believe. Why would you make up a religion that would, may even cost you your own head? Well, they made it up. Why? Well, they were just really deranged. Well, how did they get 3,000 people on one day to suddenly just become deranged? I mean, you keep following the logic, and eventually it makes no sense. Right? Acts chapter 2, 3,000 came to Jesus in one day. Right? Jesus himself, on the 40 day, after he came back from the grave, he walked the earth for 40 days. And the Bible says that he showed himself to almost 500 people in one setting. Right? So if we want to take Jesus and his resurrection and try it in a, in a court, right? and I'm the defendant saying, oh, nope, Jesus did come back from the dead, I've got 500 witnesses in one setting I can pull in. At some point, okay, next witness, next witness, next witness, next witness, next witness, get next witness, ne nope, next witness. At some point, the judge is going to go, okay, stop with the witnesses. We know it's true, right? Wouldn't they in a court of law? And so, well, they made it up. Well, that just, that just doesn't, you don't make something up and then get persecuted, killed for it, crucified for it, boiled in oil for it, thrown off the temple, thrown off a three- or four-story building and fall to your death. You don't, impaled on sticks, you don't make this stuff up to live your life like that. I, has anybody else made anything up that you're willing to die for? Anybody, has anybody tried to die for a lie? Anybody? Yeah, none of you. It doesn't. Okay, the third question. Why, um, why would they record their own mistakes and failures? Why? Think about this for a minute. They recorded their own mistakes. I mean, wouldn't you, if you're going to write, if you're going to write something to start a new religion, and, and what, and, oh, and by the way, under Roman law and the Roman Empire law, it's illegal to start a new religion. Once Rome invaded, they had quickly documented all the religions in the region, and you were not allowed to create a new one. So simply by creating a new religion, you're breaking Roman law. Why would you get thousands of people just to suddenly break the law, knowing that you've got centurions sitting over here ready to crush your skull? That just it doesn't make sense. So if you're going to write a book, why would you record your own mistakes and your own idiocy? I mean, read. Peter's constantly putting his foot in his mouth all the time, right? Okay, 
It's the fourth thing to consider. None of these writers began as converts to Christianity when they started writing. None of them were converts. When they started writing, or when they, when they first encountered the gospel, right, none of the writers began as converts. Think about that for a minute. What? All of them, except for Luke, were Jews. What caused them to convert to a life of persecution and hardship? What causes them to change? Do you remember the night Jesus was betrayed? Peter did something three times. He denied Jesus three times. Jesus even told Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows, before the sun rises. You, you will deny me three times. And with a matter of two to three months later, Peter is standing in front of thousands of people saying, this is the Jesus we preach to you. This is the Holy Spirit. What would cause a man to get angry and deny Jesus three times? And if you read it in the Greek, Peter literally starts swearing at these people. Peter is swearing, using curse words at these people. I do not know him. I don't know him. I want no part of him. And then two to three months later, he's like, no, this is the man. What would cause such a radical change in two to three months? Not like he changed over the course of years, right? It had to be, resur it had to be resurrection. It had to be the power of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise, outside of that, it, there's no logical explanation for it. So what do we do with this thing we call the Bible in closing? What do we do with this thing we call the Bible? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul tells us, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. What do we do with the Bible? We hear the message of the gospel. We allow it to take root in us. And here's what happens. When you begin to read the Bible, when you begin to study it, you're going to read things that just brush you wrong, that you're like, I don't agree with that. Or I don't like the way that says, I don't, I don't think that's right. And now, what's happened? Light, the Bible says that light has been shown in your darkness. And now your job is to say, it's either what Jesus said, it's what Paul said, it's what the gospel says, because God has been faithful to his word. It's what they said, or it's what I think, say, and do. I can either, I can either find my identity in Jesus and give that part of me that God has just revealed that I don't like, that makes me angry and mad and bitter. I can't believe Jesus would say that. Why would he do this? What, I can either take that and say, Jesus it's yours, and I don't understand, and I don't make, it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to bring my life under your guidance, or you can rebel against it. One promises to change you. In fact, the Psalms even say, the psalmist says, that you will give me the desire of my heart. It doesn't mean that you desire it and that he gives it to you. It means that he will change your heart so much that his desires become your desires. The gospel gets inside of us and begins to illuminate our lives so that we want 
to change and our faith grows. So let's stand this morning. And through all of this, I think we have to ask ourselves, as we close in song, here's what I want you to ask yourself. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in all of this? Because people, listen to me, there has been a multitude of millions, if not billions, that have accepted Christ before us. And every single one of them had to bring their life into alignment with this. It's the only way to heaven. It doesn't matter what I think, what I say, what I do. What matters is if I follow Christ and accept his word. So as we close in song, I want you to ask yourself, Holy Spirit, just ask the Holy Spirit. If you need to close your, close your eyes, bow your head. Ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me?